Delighted that you're here and I hope you've got your Bible with you. As we talk about some things that have to do with some first principle studies of the teaching of our Lord. If you were to be asked this question, why are you a member of the Church of Christ? How would you answer that question? Assuming you are a member of the church, if you were to be asked by your friend or neighbor or family member, why are you a member of the Church of Christ? What would be your answer to that? How would you respond to that? And as you're contemplating that, may I suggest to you that millions never stop to question their religious position. An honest person must know what he is trying to be and why he is what he is. Why are you trying to be a member of the Church of Christ? What are you trying to be? and Why are you trying to be that? If you continue in a religious relationship or in a religious practice that believes in practices, error is to be dishonest. If you're a part of a religious group that you know teaches error and they practice error, that is dishonest. And there may be people that fit into that category. The answers that people would give as to why they're part of a particular religious group may be varied. For example, some may say, I'm a part of this church because it's a large membership. I lived in North Alabama for a while, and in North Alabama, the Church of Christ is the most popular church. And if you want to be somebody in North Alabama, you want to be a member of the Church of Christ. If you want to be somebody in the community, you want to identify with the Church of Christ because it is the most popular church in in that region. So some are part of the church because that is the largest membership. Others because it is a small church. They don't like to get lost in a, in a big group and they look around for a small church. And this church of Christ happened to be a small group and I want to be a part of a small group. Some places it may be a popular church like the, what I just mentioned a moment ago. Or there's good people that I know go there. Some of my neighbors went there and they're good people and I identified with them because they are good people. Others have identified with the church because that's close to where they live. Happens to be in the neighborhood, happens to be down the street about a mile. Some might answer saying, I'm a member of the Church of Christ because I was raised in the church. My parents, my grandparents, the region I mentioned a moment ago, I would talk to people and they would tell, and they would use non-biblical terminology, I'm a Church of Christer, my parents were Church of Christers, my grandparents were Church of Christers. That is the language of Ashdod to start with, but... The reason they're members of the church is because their grandparents were. I was raised in the church, they would say. Or maybe someone would say, I married a member of the church of Christ and I identified with that, so we'd go to the same church, and so perhaps that's why they're a part of that. If those are legitimate reasons, then we should join any church in town. Because there may be a denomination that has large membership. There may be good people there. They may may be close to where you live. Surely there's more reasons as to why one should identify with a religion. I want to suggest to you that one should not be a member of a church without knowing and believing what that church stands for. Let me illustrate that. For example, if one were to be a Baptist, they should understand that Baptists, by the very nature of their name and where how they identified when they started, was that they believe in immersion, as opposed to other religions around that were believing in practicing uh, the matter of sprinkling or pouring as an act of baptism. And that's where the division fell, so that those who begin to identify 
as being those who believed in immersion were identifying themselves as Baptists. We believe in immersion. So one should not be a Baptist unless they understand that they believe in immersion because that's what Baptists stand for is immersion. On the other side of the equation, here is the Methodist, and the Methodist church believes in sprinkling, and they practice sprinkling instead of immersion, and those are quite opposite one from the other on that particular doctrine. Maybe very similar in another area or two, but, but in that area concerning what constitutes baptism, they are quite varied in that. Now, what I cannot imagine is one who is a Baptist deciding, you know what, I want to transfer and change over and become a Methodist without giving consideration to the doctrinal difference. That we believe over here, immersion is the only form of being baptized, but over here we believe that there is something that's a different form of baptism. Can you imagine changing and transferring membership and saying, I want to become now a Methodist, or I was a Methodist, now I'm becoming a Baptist, without giving consideration of knowing what they believe and what they stand for and what they indeed practice. Let's talk about the basis for religious affiliation. And the basis for religious affiliation is that of conviction. And the only acceptable basis for conviction is the word of God itself. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 10 and in verse 17. You know the text. You know the context. And the text says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The only acceptable basis for conviction, religious conviction... It's not what your grandparents believe, not what your mate believes, not what your friends believe, but what the text itself says. So our basis for religious affiliation should be based upon conviction and that conviction rooted in the word of God itself. So with that in mind, I want us to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 15. <coughs> 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 15. The text says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give a defense to everyone who asks for the reason of hope that is within you with meekness and fear. In other words, put the Lord first and foremost in your life and always be prepared to give a reason for why you believe what you believe. That's why we started on the question. If you were to be asked, why are you a member of the church of Christ? What would you say? You need to be prepared to answer that. There is a reason why you are. What is the reason? Is it a legitimate reason or not? So the question is, can you give biblical reason for your faith and your practice and your work? Can you answer the question, why? When someone asks you, why are you a member of the Church of Christ? Instead of being a Baptist or a Methodist or a Presbyterian or a Catholic or whatever the case may be. Can you answer that? And if so, what would your answer be? I'm a member of the Church of Christ because, what would your answer be? Do you have religious conviction as that's the reason why you're a member of the Church of Christ? Early disciples died in the arena rather than deny their faith. Polycarp is an example of that. Who was asked to deny his allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was, by the way, a disciple of the Apostle John. And he was one who, who, said, who was asked concerning his faith in Christ and his allegiance to Christ. He said he would not renounce the Christ and they burned him at the stake because of that. That is, he was ready to give an answer. Here's why I believe what I believe. Here's why I stand where I stand. Are you willing to stand? What would be your answer to the question? All of that in mind, let's raise this question. Why am I a member of the Church of Christ? I want to do a two-part study. This Part one this morning and this evening we'll finish this up. And let's answer the question, why am I a member of the Church of Christ? 
And let's start with this. Here's the first. I am a member of the Church of Christ because it is built upon the foundation of the eternal truth that Jesus is the Son of God. I'm a member of the Church of Christ because it is built upon the foundation of the eternal truth that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. And let's develop that thought for a moment. The Church of Christ is founded upon no individual as is the case with reference to a number of denominations. Lutheranism is built upon Martin Luther. That's why it is referred to as Lutheranism. It's because it is founded upon the individual and the teachings of that individual Martin Luther. The Christian science religion is based upon and built upon Mary Baker Eddy, who defended and practiced the doctrines upon which Christian science is built. Seventh-day Adventism is built upon the concepts of Ellen G. White. Mormonism is built upon Joseph Smith. Presbyterianism and much of the Baptist faith is built upon John Calvin's concept. And on and on we could go. That's just a sampling of the kinds of concepts we're talking about. Every denomination is built upon some individual, some theory, or some doctrine. And that's upon the, the foundation upon which that church is built. Let's go further. So the church is not built upon in an individual, but is built upon Christ. The church of Christ is built upon the rock. Let's open our Bibles to a familiar text in Jesus' statement in Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 16 and in verse 18. He came to his disciples and he asked him, who do, you, who do men say that I the Son of Man am? And they gave varied answers. Some say you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah, you're one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? And Peter said upon that he said that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now verse 18, Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. It's not a reference to Peter. Peter is not referred to as being the rock. The rock is that truth that Peter had just confessed, and that is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon this rock, what rock? What had just been acknowledged and what had been confessed, that Jesus indeed is the Son of God, I will build my church. So the church of Christ is built upon that rock, not upon an individual. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and in verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11, the text says, For there is no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There is only one foundation, and that is the foundation of Jesus Christ. So that means the foundation is divine. It is built upon a divine foundation, that is the foundation of the eternal truth that indeed Jesus is the Son of God. Now your religion is no better than the foundation upon which it stands. That is, if all you believe and practice comes from Christ, then you're standing on solid ground. If I can make sure that what I believe and what I teach and what I practice is founded upon Jesus Christ and His being the Son of God and what He teaches, then I'm up on solid foundation. But if there's anything that I believe or practice that comes from any other source, then I'm building on the wrong foundation. So why am I a member of the Church of Christ? I'm a member of the Church of Christ because it is built upon the eternal foundation that Jesus is the Son of God. Secondly, I am a member of the Church of Christ because it recognizes Christ as the only head and the only source of authority. 
Because it recognizes Jesus as the only head and the only source of authority. Members of the Church of Christ accept the authority of Christ is complete and believe that it excludes all other sources of authority. These are familiar texts to us all, but let's go now to Matthew chapter 28 and in verse 18. In giving the Great Commission, Jesus said, All authority is given unto me both in heaven and on earth. This is at the issuance of carrying the gospel forth through every creature under heaven. He said, all authority is given unto me both in heaven and on earth. All authority is given unto Christ. He is the source of all authority. Let's go to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. And as you're turning there, let me remind you that the writer of this book says this is about Christ and the church. There is a connection between Christ and the church, and he's writing about both according to chapter 5. And in chapter 1, 22 and 23, Christ is ahead over all things. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ is the only authority and the only source of authority. That means that no one else has any authority over the church at all other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's talk about some religious practices that put someone else in charge rather than Christ. This is not trying to be derogatory to that religious group. It's just a matter of fact that the Catholics believe that the Pope is head because he gives divine edicts. That is, any Catholic recognizes, if he understands Catholicism, that the Pope can give a divine edict. That is, when he speaks, that is divine revelation. So that makes him the head of the church. Well, he's not the only one that does that. The Protestant groups have their councils and their conventions and their synods. And so if you have a friend or neighbor that's part of a religious denomination and you begin to inquire about what their group is, well, they're part of this larger group, this district of churches. And those district of churches get together into a larger group and they have their convention once a year. And they vote on what they believe and they vote on what their creed will be. And so they may have a convention, for example, the Southern Baptist Convention you talk, hear about quite frequently. And they'll have a meeting of, of individuals that vote on what their stance is or what they believe. The Presbyterians do the same thing. The Methodists do the same thing. They have their councils, their conventions, and their synods that get together. So that's their source of authority. But Christ having all authority, Matthew 28 and verse 18, excludes all others as having authority. So why am I a member of the Church of Christ? I'm a member of the Church of Christ because Christ is the only head and the only source of authority. Now let's open our Bibles to this text in Matthew chapter 21 and see the difference in divine and human authority. This is a simple point. But in Matthew chapter 21 in verse 25, when the question came up concerning the baptism of John, notice in Matthew 21 and in verse 25 that the question was asked concerning the baptism of John. The baptism of John, from whence is it? This is Jesus asking this question. From heaven or from men? It's either one or the other. Where did it come from? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But if they say from men, we fear the multitude. And their answer was that we do not know. The King James says we cannot tell. In other words, we're not going to answer. But notice the dilemma Jesus put them in. He said, Concerning the baptism of John, you tell me, Was it of heaven or of men? It's either from heaven or from men. There is human authority and there is divine authority. 
Let's go again to Matthew chapter 15. There is a contrast between the word of God and the commandments of men. That tells me there's two sources of authority. There is the authority of God. There's the authority of men. In Matthew chapter 15, beginning at verse 6. Matthew chapter 15, verses 6 through 9. Jesus said that... Uh, I want to focus at verse 9. Or let's start at verse 6 or verse 7. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, The people draw nigh to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is from, from me. Now, verse 9, And in vain they worship, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Notice again the contrast between two standards of authority, the word of God and the commandments of men. And so why are we, what's the, what's the point we're making? Well, the question is, is the thing that you believe and the thing that you practice taught by heaven or by men? That was the question in Matthew 25. So why am I a member of the church of Christ? Because it seeks to follow Christ is the only source of authority and not the authority indeed of man as denominationalism does. The members of the church of Christ do not seek to use Old Testament as authority. I'm a member of the church of Christ because it seeks to follow after the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in the pages of the New Testament. Rather than following the pages of the Old Testament as the standard of authority. Now what's the problem with that? Let's turn to Galatians 5 and in verse 4, where Paul is writing, saying in Galatians chapter 5, that if you seek to be justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Those who were seeking to be justified by the law, they were seeking to go back under the Old Testament law. They were seeking to practice by the Old Testament law. He said, you're fallen from grace. Let's go to another text. It's quite clear, and that's in Galatians chapter 3, 24 and 25. Well, the text says the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, but after that faith has come, we're no longer under the schoolmaster. We're no longer under the tutor. So the law was a tutor or a schoolmaster. We're no longer under the tutor or the schoolmaster. We're no longer under the law. So why am I a member of the church of Christ? Because it recognizes Christ is the only head and the only source of authority. But here's a third reason. I'm a member of the church of Christ because it gives Jesus Christ the preeminence in all things. I'm a member of the church of Christ because it gives Jesus Christ preeminence in all things. Now that should recognize, or that should ring a bell to you, of Colossians chapter 1. So let's turn to Colossians chapter 1, where in Colossians chapter 1, Christ is preeminent in all things. Colossians 1 is arguing for the preeminence of Jesus Christ. When we take Jesus and we compare him to creation, when we compare him to the sinful world, when we compare him to numerous things found throughout the text, even as we look at his relationship with the Father and the Godhead and sinners, we look at Jesus in all things, he comes out preeminent, transcendent and supreme. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. That's the will of God, that Jesus should have preeminence in all things. Now what that means is that preeminence says that we should exalt Christ. And if we exalt Christ, every doctrine he taught should be held as the same. That is, if Jesus taught on worship, we should focus on worship. But when he taught on marriage, I should honor his teaching on marriage. Not as more important than what he says about worship, but they're equally important. And if he focuses on honesty, I should focus on honesty, and that's just as important as marriage, and also just as important as worship. No one aspect of that, teaching of Christ is more important than another. 
So in James chapter 2, keep that in your mind. We're going to make some application of that in a moment. James 2 and in verse 10 says we should not exalt one doctrine above another. Let's go to James chapter 2 and in verse 10. James chapter 2. James 2 tells me that the law of God comes as a package unit. The law of God comes as a package unit. What does that mean? Well, let's look at chapter 2 and verse 10 of the book of James. Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. What's his point? You can't take the law of God and parse it out and say, I like this part of that and this is important and this over here is not important. You take it as a package deal. You either take it all or reject it all. And so if Christ is preeminent in all things, every doctrine he taught should be held as the same. Now let's make some application of that. Men exalt often one doctrine or one command or one aspect of religion above another. For example, the reason the Baptists are called Baptists is because they gave great emphasis to baptism being immersion. Not being essential, but being immersion. And that's how they became known as Baptists. Go back and study your history and you'll find that to be the case. They're called Baptists because they gave great emphasis to immersion over other aspects of things, but immersion versus sprinkling, so therefore they became known as Baptists. The Methodists, for example, because they gave great emphasis to the methodical approach to holiness, of how they were to do methodically follow the principles of holiness, so that they began to be labeled by derision by some as being Methodists because they're quite methodical, but they themselves then adopted that name, and they called themselves Methodists. Because they're focused on methodical, methodically, uh, being methodical in their approach to holiness. Well, the Presbyterians gave emphasis to the presbytery, that is a certain form of government. The Catholics were known because the word Catholic means universal, the universal nature of the church, the worldwide church was the, what they were emphasizing, that the Pope was head over all the church. So they were focusing on one aspect of the, the teaching of the Lord in their mind. And so when they held to one doctrine, they rejected other principles of the gospel. But the Lord's church, the church you read about in the New Testament, gives Christ preeminence in all things, in whatever he taught, and whatever he, he instructed us to believe. Here's a fourth principle. I'm a member of the church of Christ because it is built after the divine pattern of organization. I'm a member of the church of Christ because it is built after the divine pattern of organization that we read about in the pages of the New Testament. Let's go back to this principle we've already seen in Ephesians chapter 1, in Colossians chapter 1. Christ is the only head of the church. Here are some parallel passages. Here's two. Turn to one or the other. We've already read Colossians chapter 1 in verse 18. He gave him to be head over the church and be preeminent in all things. And we read earlier, Ephesians chapter 1, 22 and 23, that he said over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's another text there we haven't read yet, and that's in Ephesians 5 and in verse 23. For as Christ is the head of the, uh, for his husband is the head of the wife, and Christ is also the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. So three texts here tells me that Christ is the only head of the church. There is no other organization. There is no other organization in the universal sense of the church. Let's back up just for a moment and drive that point home. When we talk about the church of our Lord, where is the headquarters for the church of our Lord? It's in heaven because there's only one head. There's no universal head. 
except for Christ. There's no headquarters except for heaven. There is no organization. There is no synod. There is no structure. The only thing the church consists of in a universal sense is those who are New Testament Christians and Christ being the head in the relationship we have with Christ. There is nothing else. There is no organization. There is no treasury. There is no unit of churches. When it comes to the New Testament church, the local church has organization. Turn to Philippians 1 and in verse 1, the only organization we read about in the pages of the New Testament is what the church at Philippi had. The church at Philippi had bishops and deacons, elders and deacons. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi and he addressed them as having elders and deacons or bishops and deacons. So there were elders and there were deacons. That's the organization that was mentioned in the New Testament. In Acts 14 and verse 23, on the first missionary journey, as Paul traveled, he established churches in various cities, Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, Derby. Then he went back revisiting those churches and established elders in every church. So I'm learning the organization consisted of elders and deacons. And I noticed in Acts 14, 23, every church was to have its own elders and own deacons. Let's go a step further. Elders were the overseers. They're also called pastors or bishops. But Paul wrote to, or spoke to the elders of the church at Ephesus saying they were to take the oversight. Those were the ones who had the oversight of the church. What we read in the New Testament is that the preachers were not the pastors or the overseers. Quite often you have in denominationalism, the man who is the pastor of a church is the pastor in the sense he is the leader. He is the boss. He is the, the one who makes all decisions. Because he's in the pulpit as being the preacher, he's also the one who makes all decisions. He is the leader of that church. That was not the pattern of the New Testament. That's not what we find in the pages of the New Testament. Deacons, on the other hand, were special servants that we read about in Philippians 1 and in verse 1, who met the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, who serve under the oversight of the elders. And that's what the organization that you read about in the pages of the New Testament. So why am I a member of the Church of Christ? Because it is built after the divine pattern and organization. Because it has elders and deacons, has elders in every church, who meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, and doesn't have universal organization. So when I find a church that has universal organization, has a headquarters on earth, has the pastor who is the the leader of that church, and that's the structure they have. It's not the church you read about in the pages of the New Testament. Here's another reason why I'm a member of the Church of Christ. It accepts the gospel of Christ as the only creed. It accepts the gospel of Christ as its only creed. The word creed simply means what one believes. It comes from the Latin credo, which simply means I believe. So when you talk about a creed, it has to do with what you believe. And the only creed is that of Christ. The only creed is that of the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. We ought to be familiar with texts like this. 2 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 3. God has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What does that mean? Everything I need for living life and being godly, God has already given me. He's given me everything I need to believe. I don't need anything else. Tell me what I need to believe or how I need to live. Everything God has given me is pertaining to life and godliness. Everything pertaining to that God has already revealed to me. 
This is a passage with which you are familiar. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's the inspired Word of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and for correction and instruction in righteousness. The Word of God tells me everything I need to know of all that I need to believe and all I need to practice has been revealed by the inspired Scriptures. So the creed we have is the New Testament. So what, what is our creed? It's the New Testament. Tells me everything I need to believe and everything I need to practice. I want to suggest to you that the creed must be recognized in order to be of that religion. That may have vanished a little bit in some of the churches. But the practice of Protestant denominationalism as they formed was you had to buy into the creed a separate book written from the Bible that was adopted by their council or synod in order to be a part of that church. And so in other words, you decide, I want to go and I want to join the Baptist church. That may have changed some, but it used to be that if you wanted to be a Baptist, you were given a Baptist creed and you had to believe that creed because this is what you have to believe to be a Baptist. And they have their church manuals. I have some of those in my library. Some of you have maybe some Baptist church manuals. There's several of those, depending on which variety that you may have. To be a Methodist, you had to buy into the Methodist discipline. I have several of those in my library. In other words, it says, here's what you believe, and here's what our practice, and here's what our doctrine is. Here's what we believe. This is what we've adopted as of this year. And it may change the next year. Because they did change from year to year. That's why I have multiple copies. In order to be a Presbyterian, you had to buy into the Westminster Confession of Faith. That was their creed. And on and on we go. So what's wrong with human creeds? So what's wrong with being a part of a church that says, we, have, we, we, we believe the Bible, and we believe all the Bible, but here is our creed book. And all this is is a book that states what we believe. What's wrong with the creed? Here's what's wrong with the creed. What's wrong with the creed is it's written by man. It's not in man that walketh to direct his own footsteps. Now remember, the creed is not a commentary on the Bible, suggesting here's what we think it, it teaches. It's not a guidebook that's guiding you back to the Bible. It is a statement of here's what we believe. That's what the word creed is. Here's what you are to believe in order to be a part of this church. In fact, people sometimes are part of a, a religious group who do not know that they have a creed until they go to their pastor and say, we don't have a creed, do we? Oh, yeah, we have a creed. Can I see a copy? And they finally produce a copy. Yeah, we do have a creed. This is what we believe. This is what we're to teach. What's in this creed? All right. What's wrong with the creed? It's written by men. Secondly, it doesn't meet man's needs. How do you know it doesn't meet man's needs? Because it's in need of constant revision. The Bible doesn't need to be revised. We're not talking about the revising a, a version so that we update the language. That's not what we're talking about. As language becomes archaic. But creeds are updated every five years, sometimes ten years, sometimes every year, depending on the denomination. And it varies from one creed to another. In other words, this creed over here may say they believed in this principle and they may have changed that view. In fact, many of them have changed on homosexuality. They used to believe it's wrong, now they believe it's okay. Their creed changed. It needs revision. We're not to add to nor take away from the Word of God. What's wrong with creeds? They contradict each other. One creed says baptism is immersion. Another one says sprinkling is okay. One says the Pope is the head. Another one says the council of the synod is the head. They can't all be right. They're contradictory one to the other. 
And furthermore, they contradict the Bible. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 1, 4 and verse 1. The creed is wrong if it contradicts the Bible. Look at 1 John 4 and verse 1. It says, test the spirits whether they be of God or for many false prophets are going out into the world. In other words, someone goes forth teaching, you put them to the test to find out if they're teaching the truth because many are false prophets. How do I know? How do I know, John? Here's how you know. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. We, that is the apostles, are of God. He who knows God hears us. He that does, is not of God does not hear us. If he's of God, he listens to the apostles. If he's not of God, he doesn't listen to the apostles. By this, whether or not he agrees with the apostles, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So I get a creed, I get out and I read it, and it says, one is saved by faith alone, before and without any other action. I know it's wrong. Creed's wrong. How do you know it's wrong? Because it doesn't agree with the revelation of God. That's why. It contradicts the Bible. If the creed says more than the Bible, it says too much. So what's in this creed? Well, it's got more than what the Bible has. Well, then it's saying too much because the Bible tells, tells me all I need to know. If it says less than the Bible, it doesn't say enough. This is my creed. This is what I believe. But it says less than the Bible. It's not saying enough. Well, someone says, well, our creed says the same thing as the Bible. Well, if it says the exact same, as the exact same thing as the Bible, then you don't need it because you already have the Bible. If it's saying the same thing as the Bible, then why do you need the creed? The creed is not needed. If it says more, it says too much. If it says less, it says too little. If it says the same thing, there is no need for the creed. But here's the last thing. I'm a member of the church of Christ because it does not employ human innovations in worship. I'm a member of the church of Christ because it does not employ Human innovations in worship. The church you read about in the New Testament seeks to worship only as God has authorized. You recall John 4, 24, the text says, God is a spirit and they who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That is, worship must be according to the spirit, that is from the heart, from the mind, but that's not all that's important. It must be in truth, in harmony with the truth and the revealed will of God. So I'm looking for a church that seeks to worship only as Christ has directed. Ignorant worship was not acceptable. In Acts 17, they worship to the unknown God. That is, they don't know who they're worshiping. No indication God accepted that. In fact, all indication, they needed to repent, verses 30 and 31. God did not accept that. So ignorant worship is not acceptable. Will worship is not acceptable. Colossians 3, 2 and in verse 23. That is according to my own will, according to human will, whatever I wish and whatever I want. That was condemned. It's not acceptable unto God. Worship is toward God. That's what worship is. It is kissing the hand toward God. Which means then that I'm trying to please God and not trying to please man. That's what worship is. Let's talk about the pattern that we read about in the New Testament for worship. In the New Testament, here's what we saw churches doing. In Ephesians chapter 5 and in verse 19, Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus saying, Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Here is what the New Testament Christians did in worship. They sang praises unto God in worship. I'm looking for a church that does that. Here's what else they did. In Acts 2 and in verse 42, they continued daily. That is, they continued in the apostles' doctrine, the text says, 
and breaking of bread and in prayers. One of the things they did in worship, by the way, that was on the first day of the week. They did that in offering prayers unto God. That was one of their acts of worship. In Acts 20 and verse 7, when they came together in an assembly like this, upon the first day of the week, Paul preached unto them. There was the study of the word as we're doing now. Taking the text and talking about the revelation of God. Here's something else they did in worship. There was the observance of the Lord's Supper. They broke bread. They came together to break bread. To observe the Lord's Supper, in other words. And something else they did in worship on the first day of the week, that is, they laid by in store and they were giving. That's what we read about in the pages of the New Testament. So you say, why are you a member of the Church of Christ? I'm looking for a church and I'm a member of the Church of Christ because... It does not employ human innovations in worship. It follows the pattern we read about in the New Testament. But quite often what churches are doing, they're making efforts to worship that are guided by the desires of men. For example, they have instrumental music found in most of the churches of the day. It's not found in the pages of the New Testament. It's not found because it's not authorized. You quite frequently find churches that are geared toward entertainment. Where not only is there instrumental music, but there is entertainment as part of their worship services. You find this also. You might find candlelight communion. Or you might find the wearing of religious robes. Perhaps to give it some dignity. Or the observance of special days. This time of year you might have Christmas specials. That are part of their worship services or part of the work of the church. Or maybe a special Easter service and on down the line. And those are beginning to be part, are not only beginning, but they are part of human innovations. So what have we seen this morning? We're going to continue this and look at several more reasons in our second part this evening. I'm a member of the Church of Christ because it is built on the foundation of the eternal truth that Jesus is the Son of God. I'm a member of the Church of Christ because it recognizes Christ is the only head and the only source of authority. Because it gives Jesus Christ preeminence in all things. It's built after the divine pattern of organization. It accepts the gospel as the only creed, and it doesn't employ human innovations in worship. That's why I'm a member of the Church of Christ. Why are you a member of the Church of Christ? If you're not a Christian, you're not a child of God, then you're not a member of the Church of Christ. Would you become one this morning? Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism? for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?